IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about a new song by the Beatles, a new song by Dive, and a new album by the up-and-coming band Hotline TNT. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He thinks Now and Then is the Beatles' most emo song yet, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You see, that's where you're wrong, because I'm pretty sure I've written on Twitter or, like, Blogspot sometime in the past that Run For Your Life invented third-wave emo. <laughs> Did you really? Probably. You- uh, that, 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 that sounds like some bullshit. You know you gotta, like, go back to the, um, you know, the pre-drugs Beatles to bring up the problematic songs. That they made oh on God. like Rubber Soul and before, but yeah, Run for Your Life. People are like, yeah, that that one. I don't know if I can jive with that one, but that's just that's that's just what I imagine like '60s pop rock sounding like. People that rip that song don't realize that John Lennon is referring to a Elvis Presley song with the like quintessential, like the important lyric. I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man. Is a is a lyric from a song called "Baby Let's Play House." That I mean, Elvis <laughs> didn't originate it, but his his version's the most famous one. It's from the Sun uh, Records era. So Plausible deniability, it, baby. Well, I'm just saying, it, Elvis maybe is the one who invented third wave emo uh, via John <laughs> Lennon. Um, now and then, uh, the name of the just-released Beatles song, the song that is just released as we are recording this, we actually pushed back our recording start time a few minutes so we could listen to the new song by the Beatles. Uh, and look, it's weird. This isn't really a new song. Maybe this is something we could talk about for a little bit because what they did was they took a demo that John Lennon recorded before he died. Paul McCartney, Ringo, like they play over it. They did some like AI magic tricks, which I don't quite understand. But, you know, they, they did something, some kind of manipulation to make it sound integrated. And now we have this song... You may remember, going back now almost 30 years, they did something similar with two other John Lennon demos, uh, Free as a Bird and Real Love, that were released in conjunction with the Anthology series in 1995. Uh, This song sounds uh, more integrated, just because the technology is better. Like those older songs, those older, new, in quote marks, Beatles songs, really did just sound like a demo with like, very glossy <laughs> Jeff Lynne produced instrumentation put over it. Um, I don't know. I'm curious to hear what you think about this. I to me it reminds me of like all those like '90s power pop bands that would make a song that sounded like late period <laughs> Beatles. Like that's what this sounds like to me. I don't know if you have any opinions on this. Yeah, like as I was doing this outline, I was on the same shit where it's like there's got to be some 90s band, like some remembering some guys I could do. And like I just failed completely. I, I, It was on the tip of my tongue and I know these bands exist. I want to say like Jellyfish or something, but. Oh, yeah, Jellyfish. I mean, or Sloan, I think Sloan was another band that's that came to call. mind. Yeah. You know, they, they had some Beatles sounding songs. Yeah, but Sloan is good and like this. Uh, like, Yeah, I'm not knocking yeah. it when I say that. I, I, I tweeted this yeah. and like about a dozen middle aged guys were like, that's my favorite kind of music. And I'm like. <laughs> I'm not knocking it. I like that I like that stuff too. I'm just saying like that's what it sounds like to me. If I was going to describe what it sounds like, 
that's what it would be. There was no value judgment attached to it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm gonna you know reach out to our more uh, our thirty something rather than our middle aged people by saying it to me sounded like a less vibey version of a B side that might have shown up on Lonerism, which again, not knocking that. I mean, it's better than. My my immediate assumption, which is that you know, AI Beatles, this is going to sound like Zach Starkey era Oasis. Um, by the way, I whoa 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 <laughs> don't don't take shots at Zach Starkey Oasis. Like that's a good era of Oasis. Like the <laughs> the era between like the Glory years and the Zach Starkey years is like where it gets a little dicey. But like Zach Starkey, that's don't believe the truth. That's like the great late period Oasis record. So. You don't need to shoot any strays at Zach Starkey here. I'm just saying. All right. One thing I do want to know is like uh, the fact that you knew the 2005 album like off the dome. It doesn't bode well for my question here. But what's the last Oasis album? Uh, it was. Uh, oh, what's it called? I know this. <laughs> uh, I could picture the cover. Yeah, it's a terrible oh. cover. Yeah, it's like a green cover. What's it called? <laughs> I know, like, like, like. Like Shock of the Lightning is on that record. I like that song. What is that called? I'm. Bl- Do you know it? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, that's because I had to look it up. But it's uh, called Dig Out Your Soul. And oh, see, I knew that. And the funny thing oh. is that it looks like a Chemical Brothers album cover. Um, yeah. And the title sounds like the Chemical Brothers album, which uh, one of those dudes was on. Setting Sun is yeah. Like Noel one, Gallagher. Noel. Yeah. It's like one of the best songs ever made. Uh, yeah, th- that one had a, a Jim Archer song. That's to be where there's life, and Andy Bell getting some uh, credits on that. Yeah, he, yeah, they. Uh, uh, Andy Bell has a great song on "Don't Believe the Truth" called. Uh, um, boy, I'm <laughs> all, all these Oasis songs. Uh, uh, Keep the dream alive. I believe that's an Andy Bell song. There's also a song called "A Bell Will Ring." Yep, which I think was. Uh, It'd be funny if that was Andy Bell, if he wrote that song. Someone named Archer, Archer made song. that, yeah. Yeah, it's Jim Archer wrote that song. Got it. I kind of wish Andy Bell would have written A Bell Will Ring. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, again, like this song, I group it in the same category as Free as a Bird and Real Love, where like these are Beatles songs like with asterisks, you know? like They're not real Beatles songs to me, and I feel like most people aren't going to take these in as real Beatles songs, even though this song is being billed as like the last Beatles song, which I don't even know is true. I mean, there may be like 50 years in the future, there may be like AI Beatles songs that uh, are being created for future box sets. Like I wouldn't totally rule that out, but I don't know. Like for me, I'm a huge Beatles fan. I'm a big fan of the Beatles archive industrial complex. (laughs) I loved get back. I love all the box sets. But I get more excited about new Beatles songs that are actually old Beatles songs that they just like dug out of a vault. Like the Revolver box set, the fast version of Rain, you know, from 1966. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to hear that. But I don't really want to hear like a new Beatles song that they pasted together. It just feels weird to me. Yeah. I don't know if you watch the 12 minute. There's like a before we thought that the only thing we were going to have access to before we recorded is a 12 minute uh, YouTube documentary about the creation of the song. I know Sean Lennon's in it, so I was just kind of hoping he'd go off on some anti-vax shit. But, you know, that didn't happen. We count that as a win. Um, Yeah, I'm interested in this song particularly because you were talking about the Beatles Industrial Complex, which was a massive thing when we were, you know, in our teens in the early 90s. The, um, you know, the, like, Free as a Bird and, like, of course, the... 
three issues of uh, I, of uh, the red and blue double albums. I think that the, the, that's what this one is uh, in relation to. I think they're like remastering and re-releasing the blue uh, double CD. I guess that's like the post-touring hits. Uh, that's sixty-seven to seventy is okay. blue, and then and then red is sixty-two to sixty-six. I believe that they're putting out both yeah. of those. And uh, I mean, it's so funny that like even Beatles greatest hits albums get reissued and like have reputations. You know, like blue and red. Like those albums were huge for oh, me. Enormous. When I when I was a teenager, just getting into the Beatles, like though that was my gateway into the catalog. So. I have a sentimental attachment to those records. I'm not going to get the remastered versions. I, I, I'm not that <laughs> much of a freak with this band. But, uh, yeah, it just speaks to the level of Beatle lore that's out there. And, again, like, this isn't a real Beatles song, in my opinion. But I'm not mad at it, at it either. Like, I'm not one of these, like, purists. Like, oh, they shouldn't have done this. I just think it's irrelevant. I mean, we're going to forget this by next week. It, it's But it's a fun novelty, and it's fun to talk about a new Beatles song. Uh, on our show yeah what i'm what i'm hoping for is that we get like these sort of campaigns for the canonical greatest hits albums of our youth like we get the doors the one with like the jim morrison shirtless pose reissued maybe the eagles greatest hits reissued let's uh, let, let, let's let's gin up these classic rock war horses well th- i mean that eagles one that's still like one of the best-selling albums of all time so i'm sure that's been remixed and remastered and you know re-released millions of times i mean that 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 is like definitely a big one like Jimi hendrix smash hits that's another big classic rock greatest hits album um yeah greatest hits albums that would be a fun conversation the greatest greatest hits albums i've actually thought about writing that no limit no uh cash money platinum hits that's the best one let's do a quick fantasy update here uh because we're nearing the end of uh, our active albums. My last album comes out today. It's The Comeback Kid by Marnie Stern. Uh, I looked on Metacritic. I haven't seen any reviews yet, so it remains to be seen how I'm doing here. I have to say, though, that I have more hope today than <laughs> I did a week ago because as listeners, I'm sure, are aware because you're keeping very close tabs on this, uh, the last two albums for our fantasy teams, because right now Ian and I are tied, which is insane <laughs> that we're tied. That we, that we were tied going into like the last album for both of us. That's so bizarre to me that we it's, that's got to be like a mathematical anomaly. But we ended up being tied going into our last albums. Your last album is Taylor Swift, 1989 Taylor's version. Mine is The Comeback Kid by Marnie Stern. Looking pretty grim for me. That's like a tough matchup for me um but taylor i mean at one point she had like a hundred metacritic score yeah like and there were people messaging me like oh like you must be sweating buckets right now like you're gonna get blown out of the water that score has dropped over the course of the week down to 90 which is a strong score but I think this is going to be a lot closer than we anticipated. Like I could get, I, I don't think I'm going to win. I don't think Marty Stern's going to hit 90, but I think I, I'm only going to lose by like five or six as opposed to like 20. It, it, so I, I'm feeling like I'm feeling better about this than I was a week ago. Yeah. I think that the situation here is um, 
to use fantasy football terms, like Taylor is like when you have Tua on the Dolphins putting up like 250 yards and three touchdowns in the first half, and then they just run the ball second half because they just want the game to be over. Whereas Marty Stern has a lot of Sam Howell potential. Sam Howell's a guy I've had on my team who just puts up like complete garbage points at the end of the game, but like they all count the same. Yeah, I'm I, I'm wondering if like with the Taylor stuff, um, like are we for are we starting to see the cracks of like maybe people getting a little tired? Like when she has to do the Taylor version of like Lover and Reputation, are we going to start to see people? like maybe start to break ranks or is that just going to be a situation where, you know, it's like, Oh, these are like actually her un, un her unheralded masterpieces. The way you see people go to bat for like, you know, around the world in a day for Prince or something like that. I don't know. 1989 is an interesting record because it is the album that really made her like a mainstream pop star, like without question. I mean, that, 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 Transition was going on for a while, but like 1989 really cemented her. But it's like not her most critically acclaimed record. I feel like the record before Red is the big one that critics tend to go for. And then there's Fearless a little bit before that. So I think she was set up here uh, to uh, maybe take a hit for those reasons. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I would think that there would be a backlash coming because... I mean, she owned this year without question. She's like the biggest thing. She kind of ate pop music really mm. in 2023. Like she ate the pop music industry. Um, there's like Taylor Swift and then there's like everybody else. And like she seems bigger than like everybody else combined. And that seems like a recipe for some sort of tipping point. At the same time, the coverage of her is still pretty like hyperbolic and over the top and crazy and, and, and worshipful. So I don't know. I Maybe there's small cracks, but it still seems like there's a lot of Taylor Swift sentiment, uh, you know, in, in the critical community. Yeah. I also, I also got to give a shot to pitch for, for uh, the person reviewing it already being on private on Twitter or not on Twitter at all. Like that's got to be, I think that's got to be a, uh, require, a prerequisite to review that record. Yeah, can we chill out, Taylor Swift fans? Like, <laughs> how much praise does she need? Like, w- like, when do we reach the point like where she has the proper level of respect, and that it's okay to like not just genuflect in her direction? Like, is is there like a you, you know? I, I I'm like uh, Charlie Sheen talking to Michael Douglas in Wall Street right now. Like, how much is enough? How much is enough, Gordon? How much money do you need? <laughs> I feel like this is you've reached that point already. You guys need to chill out here. Take a 7.7. It's fine. Not the end of the world. Uh, do you like the Wall Street reference, by the way? I feel like it's a very relevant yeah, cinematic <laughs> reference. Uh, referencing this uh, 36-year-old movie. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that is going to play really well <laughs> with our younger listeners. Um, let's talk about something I'm excited about that I heard this week which is a new song from the band Dive. Uh, they did this weird thing, actually like a really cool thing, where they set up like a very old school looking website. And they set it up basically to introduce this new song. It's called Soulnet. And you can't listen to it on Spotify or on Apple Music or on any streaming platform. This was a very deliberate move by this band to, at least at this point, 
circumvent the usual music listening channels and to set up their own sort of weirdo website where you could listen to the song. So that's a very cool thing. Even cooler than that is that I think the song is is fantastic. And it's well time for me personally because I've been listening to Dive a lot lately. Uh, in particular, this live record that they put out last year called Live at the Murmur Theater, which totally passed me by when it came out. Uh, last year it came out almost exactly a year ago it was like right around thanksgiving that it dropped and i don't think i noticed it when it first came out but it's like one of the best live albums of like the last like 10 or 15 years it's so good uh the band sounds great it's a great set list they do a beautiful uh cover of uh, this alex g song uh hollow uh they do a my bloody valentine cover of when you sleep uh, and then they play a bunch of their own songs, obviously. And, uh, you know, I've been listening to that record a lot. I've been listening to their last studio record, which is uh, Deceiver from 2019, which is a record I loved when it came out. But I feel like, as is often the case with this band, that it sounds even better in retrospect. And I wanted to get your take on this. I know you're a fan of Dive just like I am, and we've talked about their 2016 album, uh, Is the Izar on this show. We're both big fans of that album. I feel like in the 2010s, there was uh, a pretty like vocal contingent of critics who basically dismissed Dive as being this sort of like also-ran indie band, very <laughs> by the numbers. You know, They weren't really given a lot of respect. But man, like the three records that they put out in the 2010s, I think are all really great and i think that they're actually like one of the best indie rock bands of that era and you know they often get described as shoegaze which i think is broadly true of that band but like when i listen to their records the band that comes to mind is the cure they remind me of the cure in the sense that like the cure you know they were pigeonholed in a different way they were called like a goth band by a lot of people and they're unquestionably very influential on goth. But I think the reason why The Cure endures is that essentially they're a great pop band. They write great songs that are catchy and have beautiful melodies, and they have this atmosphere around it that adds to the richness of it that gives it that goth flavor or that alternative rock flavor. But what where the meat is is like they just write great pop songs. And to me, that's where Dive is as well. Like Those records to me hold up so well because for all of their beautiful ambience and atmosphere... They just write really good songs. And I think that the single that they just released, which I assume is going to be portending a new album. We haven't heard that they're putting out... They haven't announced a new album yet, but I assume that's coming. And and assuming that's coming, that's already on my short list of my most excited albums that I want to hear next year. I I, I really hope that this can be a dive record that we can all appreciate (laughs) as a masterful record in the moment, because I think they deserve that kind of reception. Um, I mean, they've already been around for like a decade at this point, which is kind of weird to think about with this group. But I don't know. I think they're very underappreciated. And they seem like they're on the cusp of maybe finally getting their due at this point. I mean, do you you think that's uh, fair to say? Well, I mean, for myself, um, Deceiver is an album I like more now than when I first heard in 2019. It's not that I didn't like it when I heard it. I thought it was good, but... You know, I get maybe got lost in the mix of other stuff I was excited about, but it's held up r- really well. And I think is the Azar is by is 
like a class, a, a indie cast hall of famer type classic of, you know, mid 2010s shoegaze slash dream pop. It's interesting to talk about like dive as a band that hasn't gotten their due because I reviewed the, their first album ocean in 2012. And I, it's, I, I it, that, that, that was like really, really, really hyped. And it made me think about how this band, um, and it's like a very small category of bands uh, who follow this path of starting out as like a really, really buzzy band. Like Dive like was a buzz band back in 2012. Like you had, you know, Kent 285, Zach uh, or Cole. I, I keep forgetting whether they, they go by Zach or Cole, but they were like dating Sky Ferreira at the time. And they've gotten better as the buzz has died down. I think like, you know, we're going to talk about Empty Country later on. Symbols E Guitars is a good example of that. Uh, Neon Indian, I think, is another example of a band whose first album is the most hyped one. And they just got better and better as, you know, people stopped. <laughs> they got, got took, taken for granted. I think that's true in the larger sense. But with Dive, um, Shoegaze, Dream Pop, these are extremely recession-proof subgenres. You have, like, loyalists at all times regardless of like what's happening in the greater indie narrative and i think that dive like when they do come back they're i don't know if they're like bigger than they seem but they're definitely bigger than i guess the way they're talked about and i think you can group them in with a band like nothing um who you know they're going to be celebrating the 10 year anniversary of their first album guilty of everything which i probably would want to take a mulligan on as far as like you know pan reviews um yeah i th i think that I'm excited. Like, if the, there's been a lot of announcements of, uh, you know, Q1 2024, mid 2010s indie bands coming back, Future Islands, Cloud Nothings, MGMT, which I'll listen to them all for sure. But this is one that I'm like legit excited about. I really think that uh, Dive is due, if not to get the uh, esteem that they've always deserved, but like kind of a, a reappreciation of them. Yeah, and again, getting back to the shoegaze thing, I think you're totally right. That that you know, shoegaze, dream pop, as you put it, recession averse genres, they just seem to always have an audience and, and to perpetuate like a new generation of bands every couple of years. Again, what I think separates Dive from the pack is that there are a lot of bands, especially now, who are plugging into that shoegaze vibe and they don't really have the songs that make them memorable. Like the thing with shoegaze is that like a lot of these bands, I think they're they're very listenable at first. You know, like the first time you put them on, you kind of know what they're doing. It can it's a very seductive type aesthetic, so you can like them at first, but then they tend to uh, sort of drift away into the ether like pretty quickly. And I think with Dive again, like their records, when you revisit them, I think even Ocean, like you're right, like that was a record that got a lot of hype at the time, and I think that adversely affected. The reception to is the is are. I think there were people that felt like, oh, these guys don't deserve all the write-ups that they got early in the career, so we're going to take it out at them on this record, even though that's like a much better album, I think, than Ocean. Yeah. Even though I, I like Ocean quite a bit. But anyway, I think like what really comes through on that live record I was talking about, which you can get on Bandcamp. I don't think it's on any other streaming platform, but it's a it's a pretty stripped-down performance. I I think there's it's like. Like a lot of it is like unplugged. I think it might technically be unplugged, but it doesn't really sound like that. I don't know. It, it's definitely like less reverby and less atmospheric than their records are. 
which really put, puts the focus on the songs and it's like oh yeah these songs just hold up like they're really well written songs and this band i think already has like a really good songbook uh that can make a live record come across so well yeah good news it is on apple music at the very least and they include uh loose ends which is one of my favorite uh songs from is the is are and i also think though that um you know the reason that they may have been dismissed a bit uh in between Ocean and is the Azar is that yeah, like Zach was very much a indie celebrity at the time. Um, you know, I interviewed them in 2013 and it was just a like one of the most wild uh, ones I've ever done. But it seems like they're in a much, much, much better place now. So, you know, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Well, this is a good transition into our next uh, topic here because Dive talking about them now again like weirdly as a legacy band mm-hmm. which I, I i can't fully wrap my head around <laughs> because they still seem like a young band to me but they've been around you know for over a decade uh plugging into that shoegaze aesthetic we now have like a new band that we're both excited about uh that is carrying the torch although they're a new band but also like a veteran band at the same time uh they're called hotline tnt they have a new album out today it's called cartwheel Ian, you actually reviewed this album for Pitchfork. I believe the review is up today, and it got a Best New Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to talk about that with you a little bit. I'm a little surprised that Pitchfork gave this a Best New Music. It doesn't seem like the kind of album that they'd be into necessarily, but it's definitely an album that we would be into. <laughs> this is like an indie cast album, maybe of the year. It's like very much in the overlap between what you and I are interested in. I mean, from my perspective... We'll just start with the band's frontman, Will Anderson. He was born in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, which is right next to Eau Claire. I used to drive to Chippewa Falls to uh, uh, drop off the layout for the newspaper, my college paper, when I was the editor-in-chief. Wow. Our, our, pre- our, our press was in Chippewa Falls, so like I know that town uh, pretty well. Uh, and that's about 90 minutes from where I live now. Uh, he doesn't live there anymore, but you know, still, he's a Wisconsin indie rocker which makes me just predisposed to want to support him apparently he used to live in the same neighborhood as brad and phil cook uh who are both wisconsin indie rock legends they were in megaphone they were in dr and edison with justin vernon uh both are well like much sought after musicians and producers now in the indie world uh so you have that local connection for me uh will anderson is 34 years old he's been in the in like the scene for a while he used to be in a band called weed that had a small following but it's pretty influential like in that small circle of of musicians so he has like a robert pollard thing (laughs) too like where he's like a mid-30s guy now starting to kind of have a brush with indie fame so that's great he's also into sports like this is a big thing in a lot of profiles about this band that this guy's a huge sports fan so if you listen to our show, he would enjoy Sportscast. Uh, that would be cool, too. But, look, I haven't even talked about the music yet <laughs> on this record. Just talk about all the biographical things. But, like, when I listen to this record, my thought is that it reminds me of, like, a Japan Droids record if they were into uh, Siamese Dream and not The Replacements and Bruce Springsteen. Or if they were more into that kind of thing along with, like, other kind of 90s alternative rock than, like, more of the sort of, like, 80s 
indie rock type thing. Like this is just like a big, beautiful sounding record, very catchy, very alternative rock. Again, it has that shoegaze thing, but I think unlike a lot of new shoegaze groups who tend to be more about this sort of like ethereal, like floaty sound, this has like a real like propulsion to it. And it also just has really catchy, beautiful songs that you could imagine being played on 120 minutes, <laughs> like in 1995. Again, not the kind of record that I would expect Pitchfork to endorse in 2023, but maybe this is like the best version of that kind of record. So like even people who might not totally love this kind of thing, you can't really deny that this record's really good. Yeah, it's it's funny we link them to Dive because when I first got wind of Hotline TNT, it reminded me of what I initially thought about Dive when they were still like, when the name was still spelled like D-I-V-E. I just figured, oh, this is just some Brooklyn bullshit. You know, it's something that's being hyped up because NYC music writers are hanging out with them. Uh, contempt prior to investigation, uh, always a barrier to actually enjoying music, but um turns out they're really fucking good you know and i didn't know any of that stuff beforehand about like well making an mb like you know they 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 stream mario kart um on twitch you know he writes an nba zine um and it's funny because like whenever i read an interview with will anderson um he reminds me in a way of like you know what i see a lot like mj lenderman and like molly from uh, always and one of tricks point never like they're being asked questions about like music process and like guitars and they're dying to talk about basketball instead you know like we we need right. grantland like let's, we got like r.i.p grantland but um yeah this record is awesome because you know for many reasons but i assume hotline tnt based on like the circles in which they ran was kind of doing the either um you know heavy shoegaze like has been a God, like one of the most artistically bankrupt but thriving subgenres in existence. Like I've heard enough Deftones and Hum ripoff to last me five lifetimes. And similarly, I think you know I like Spirit of the Beehive, but I feel like their influence has um, you know made a lot of bands who write catchy songs try to do like weird kind of uh, experimental noise stuff that just it, like you can't do as well as Spirit and the Spirit of the Beehive, but. This is an interesting record because um, Sugar, I think, is a very, very undervalued band uh, in this realm. And also, like uh, Will Anderson, he is a, he's a Minneapolis guy. I think his parents grew up there. He lived there for a while. And there's a lot of copper blue in this album. I think it's because, uh, you know, obviously the first single I thought you'd change sounds like Helpless, but also If I Can't Change Your Mind. Um and yeah, it's, 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 it's not a, it, it's a record that kind of stands out because it's so against, um, the narrative. I think that was true with Japan Droids when they first came out, you know, like if we're going to think about it in the terms of, and I hate to be this reductive about it, but it's a dude's rock record, not in the sense that it's just for dudes, but it's like, you know, it's about like heartbreak and, you know, feeling like a loser, but like really being into the replacements and I, I just I, I cannot not bring this up, but I, I am I am very very wary of being into these bands after having you know being suckered by beach slang. I knew I was being suckered, but like I'm like I bought into it anyway. I don't think that's happening here, <laughs> but yeah, that's like my greatest trauma as a music writer, like being suckered, knowing I was being suckered and riding with it anyway, and like you know just feeling. 
I'll never live that one down. Yeah, I mean, they're not as on the nose as Beach Slang no. was. And like, you can't I, be as on the nose as Beach Slang. Uh, yeah, Slang. <laughs> and like, Will Anderson doesn't have that like messianic, like rock guy type vibe that uh, the Beach Slang dude had. I mean, I think that's the big difference. I mean, and like the replacements thing, like, I don't pick up on that as much. I mean, I think it's, you can draw that line because of like where Will Anderson is from. But again, like, I get more of like the 90s alt rock thing from this record and you mentioned sugar copper blue and i'm, I'm just gonna throw siamese dream out there again i think like that record has just become such a common touchdown now for like a lot of indie rock bands you know you say it's like against the narrative i i actually feel like you can draw a line what's going on in this record to like the wednesday record rat saw god maybe not so much lyrically but i think sonically hmm. there's some things going on there and i know that those bands are touring together uh, right friends with each other yeah so i so i do think that there are more and more bands that are actually gaining traction with audiences as well as critics that are drawing on like that kind of aesthetic that like big 90s rock thing uh so yeah i don't know it's it, it's interesting I, I i'm curious to see if that actually becomes like a real trend i mean it kind of feels like one already in a weird way i i don't know i'm, I'm i i want to see like how this plays out uh you know in like next year i mean because we because you know we've talked about this it seemed like you know coming out of the pandemic and even before the pandemic we were very much hearing a lot of like indie music people that it was like very quiet mm-hmm. very insular sounding type records and i like a lot of those records but i think it definitely started to play itself out especially as we came out of the pandemic and it felt like okay let's get something a little louder and a little more boisterous and i think we've been moving in that direction and this record feels like it's part of that yeah and maybe if uh this trend continues into 2024 billy corgan will finally make rolling stone's greatest 100 guitar greatest uh, 250 guitarist list Oh, I love that you're still resentful about that. This <laughs> yeah. is great. We're still doing callbacks to that. Okay, so we've been pretty positive in this episode so far. You know, we're talking about Dive. Really loving that band. Excited about whatever they're going to be doing next. Hopefully a new album. We both really love this Hotline TNT record. We were a little hard on the Beatles, yeah. but you know, I think we're you know we're fine with that song. We don't hate it. We don't you know we're we're good with it. We're you know go with God if you want to hear a new Beatles song. That's great. Um, it's now time to be a little negative here, or at least to talk about the possibility of being negative. Because uh, you know, look on this show, we strive, I think, to be as close to the conversation that you and I have in our DMs. You know, like, what we say to each other in private, we want to get as close as we can get to that in this show. Of course, you can't go 100% like the DMs because there's state secrets that are shared in the DMs. There's cattiness. There's pettiness. You don't want to air that publicly. But you want to get, you know, within 85 to 90% of that. But I want to talk about the 10 to 15% that doesn't get in. (laughs) Uh, because there's a band that I know I hate. I hate this band. I'm pretty sure you don't like them either. I don't know if you use the word hate. Would you use the word hate with this band? Um, it's it's. A, I think we're gonna kind of get into this, but it's like I don't know if I could hate a band unless they like are imposing upon my life in a way that's oppressive. Like this is a band that I can ignore. 
I mean, it, it, they see they're a band that I I can't. Well, they, they seem to pop up anytime I accidentally click on the for you tab. So they they're like one of those. They're like the version of like those people on Twitter who you swear to God you've muted, but they somehow like pop up or. They're the version of that, someone you do mute, but they end up in your um, DMs like, check, get a load of this asshole. So for me, I would say that the, that the music that this band makes, aesthetically, it makes my skin crawl. Oh, it's awful. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it really bothers me. And it bothers me so much that I kind of love this band <laughs> because I hate them so much. Like I haven't disliked the band this much in a while like everything they do it's just the opposite of what i what i like and the thing is is that this band they like as you've just alluded to they uh they have like a decent sized profile at the moment they're not hugely popular by any means they're they haven't quite reached the level of what i would call critical acclaim like they have writers who like them and who have written about them but they're currently in a position where i would say and this is not to brag or anything. I think it's just true that like you or I are more well known in indie circles than this band. <laughs> you know, and uh, I'd say that's again, true, that's not yeah. a brag, no. I, but it's true. And what that's created is this feeling for me that I can't criticize them publicly yet because they're not well known enough yet. And I want to get into this with you because this presents a very interesting dilemma to me because if you look at this on the macro level my rationale i think explains why there aren't a lot of critical reviews anymore because i think writers generally feel like i don't really want to rip on like a artist that is maybe kind of marginal in terms of their public profile it doesn't seem like it's worth it it maybe even seems mean-spirited to criticize a group that or an artist that uh you know just doesn't have a big audience yet and on a macro level, I think that that's a problem. I think that there ought to be more pans. There <laughs> ought to be more criticism. I don't think it's necessarily a justification to not criticize something because it doesn't have a huge audience. But on a micro level, like on the personal level, I can totally justify feeling that way. It, it feels right to me. It feels like for my just my own personal time, like I don't really want to pick on an artist that I feel like doesn't have... Uh, that, that that no one else is really talking about. Or if I talked about them on this show, you know, most people wouldn't know who I was talking about. You know, like on a personal level, that seems like maybe a waste of time. So I want to get your take on this because I find myself in this very weird situation. And by the way, I'm not going to name this band. <laughs> like if you haven't figured that out yet, like we're not going to name this no. band, at least not yet. Nope. We may end up talking about them in the future. But I'm in this weird situation now where this band whose music I despise, I want them to be more popular <laughs> so then I can criticize them. You know, I want them to, I want more critics to like this band so then I can publicly rip them. It, se it seems like a very odd position to be in. Like I'm kind of cheering for this band I can't stand. Do you relate to this at all? Like, <laughs> it, it, and am I wrong to feel this way? Because again, like on the big level, I think it's, I, I, I'm not comfortable feeling this way. I think, this is contributing to something I don't really like. But that's how these things happen. We all make our own decisions. And the decisions that you make as a writer or as a critic, they make sense to you. But then other people 
make the same decision, and then collectively it kind of results in something that maybe isn't great. Yeah, right before we recorded, like the like the night before, I randomly saw this pan review of Shabazz Palaces. You want to talk about like you know mid like mid two thousand tens? Remember some guys, and you know I, I just love seeing people get worked up about a band that like you would never or an artist that you never think that someone would go out of their way to diss that hard. And it just brings up a point that you were talking that about. That band is more famous than the band we're talking about, yes. by the way. Or at least that band has a history of critical acclaim. Yeah. So maybe it would make sense to try to market correct that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, Shabazz Palace is the only band I saw, or the only artist I saw at Pitchfork Festival where there was like a fight in the audience during their set. But neither here nor there. Um, but this kind of brings up a point that we've maybe alluded to in previous episodes. It's not like the pan review has disappeared. But it's more the pan review of a band that isn't particularly like popular. It's like it, you know, no, no one really gives a shit when like Ed Sheeran or Lil Yachty gets a pan. I mean, people care, but it's like kind of par for the course. But you know, when you saw like Foxing uh, their last album get like a six that became like a three day controversy. So there is this. Um, I don't know if it's like an unwritten rule of music criticism these days about like punching down. Um, if it's seen as punching down to not do it. And that is, I mean, that used to be like my bread and butter. I'm not going to lie. And nowadays that I find myself in closer quarters with, you know, not just the bands, but labels, PR, you, you really see the impact a, like the disproportionate impact a negative review can have on a band who may not have the audience to sustain it. Cause yeah, I've seen it where, um, you know, it's funny, uh, the guy from the dare, uh, you know, I, I did a 6.0 like pan review of his previous band turtleneck and that really fucked things up for them, you know? Um, so I see that, but with a band like this, like it's a question of like how popular does a band need to be in order for you to like make fun of them publicly. I get the feeling you mentioned that like we're more, we might be more well-known in indie circles. I feel like this band is like trying to will a negative like pitchfork review into existence. You know what I'm saying? Cause I feel like this is the sort of band that a cares about that stuff and would use that in like an airborne toxic event sort of way to like rally their fans around them. Um, but you know, in general, I find myself a lot less um, negative publicly uh, than I used to be. Like I made a joke about the national the other day, um, you know, in relation to the James Harden trade to the Clippers. And even that felt kind of icky, you know? Um, even, like, I try not to be negative if, like, I get the sense that, like, either A, the band will see it, or, you know, fans of the band might see it. Um, that's what the DMs are for. And now with Circles disappearing, though, I mean, you used to get some really good stuff on Circles. Now you just got to be relying upon... You know whether or not someone's willing to do an alt account, which you know that's that's dicey territory. So, um, yeah, I, I think that there's no great answer to it. I wish. Uh, I, what I do is I just hope someone else does it so I can like get that secondhand smoke. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, cause, like, I just want to be clear. Like, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not worried about like fans or anything. I I, I don't really care about that. Like that. That's not what gives me pause it is more of what you were saying before feeling like am i gonna like adversely affect an artist's career and maybe that's being egotistical like i feel a little stupid 
saying that out loud because it's like like how important is like my opinion or anyone's opinion on on a band i mean you know that that, that seems a little big-headed to say but it is true i think sometimes that if a band is starting out and they get hit too early i think that can have an adverse effect and i wouldn't want to feel as much as i don't like this band i don't want anything i would write to hurt their career you know there is a thing i think where when you write something you you want to feel like if you're gonna write something critical you want to feel like well first you want to feel like this is sincere to how you feel like you're not just doing it to get attention you're doing it because this is a reflection of your honest opinion and you feel like it's worth stating and you feel like it's thoughtful like you're not just doing it as a joke but you're doing it because you feel like well this is this is pertinent conversation about this artist that other people are talking about there is that sense though too of like feeling like oh maybe they deserve it you know and 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 the deserve it thing i think comes from an artist reaching a certain level of success and maybe a claim where you feel like a lot of people are saying this is great and someone needs to stand up and say it's not great. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, you saying it's not great, it's not going to like kill their career. It's just going to open up the conversation about an artist where maybe it feels a little one-sided. I think like that is like the sweet spot that you're aiming for um, with this sort of thing. So I don't know. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm hoping that this band who, again, I can't stand, and that you and I have made fun of many times mm-hmm. in the DMs, I want them to take off. I want them to be popular <laughs> and critically acclaimed so then I feel justified in writing a think piece where I take them to task. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, at, at, at times you want a band, like you know, we've talked about um, you know, certain bands up top like Dive or Empty Country. Like We want bands to be popular because... It would feel validating, and at the same time, you want other bands who like you know that's like this is this is fucking garbage. Like there can be validation happening in that as well. It's just that I guess you know in my advanced age and a desire to not have as much negativity surrounding me, I'm just hoping somebody else does it. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I don't know, but we just spent a long time talking about a band we didn't name on here, so uh, that'll be fun. Blind item indie cast. I love it. Blind item. So let's get to our mailbag segment. Uh, thank you all for writing in uh, to us. Uh, it's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, a very short letter this week. Do you want to read this one, Ian? <laughs> yes. Uh, so this comes from Henry from Brooklyn. Um, I'm assuming it's Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and the question is, it's not really a question. It's more of a statement. Uh, actually, it's a question. Yay or nay, they might be giants. Wow. Here we go. Um, so I surprised myself while trying to figure out an answer for this. I Googled they might be giants and something I wrote about they might be giants came up oh. in the Google search. Apparently I profiled this band for Grantland. RIP Grantland. Back in like 2015, which I completely forgot about. <laughs> uh, but what I wrote in there is actually reflective of like my original thoughts about this band, which was that uh, my original thoughts about this band now after reading this question, which was that this was a band that uh, I remember from middle school in the early 90s. Uh, I definitely had a friend who had the album Flood, uh, which I think is maybe their most popular record, 1991. Yeah, that one was uh, like, I think it went platinum or something. Yeah, and that's a big record. Particle Man is on oh, that man. record, and uh, Istanbul and La Constantinople. Was on that record. Uh, other songs I can't remember, but I remember Particle Man. Um, and then 
this same friend was still into them on the next record, which was Apollo 18, I believe is the name of that record. Or it might be Apollo 13. I think it's Apollo 18. I'll Google this when it's your turn to talk. <laughs> um, what's funny to me about They Might Be Giants is that people who maybe aren't that familiar with them often group them together with Ween. Like I, I feel like people want to like say that they're in the same category. And maybe you can group them together broadly as like kind of novelty sounding bands from the 90s. Uh, I mean, I'm a much bigger Ween fan than I am They Might Be Giants fan. <laughs> And I think just in terms of like the audience they attract, it's very different. I've actually seen They Might Be Giants live, and it's a very wholesome audience. Yeah. You know, you got like parents, you got kids, uh, you know, very kind people, very well behaved. Whereas Ween's audience, and I say this with affection, <laughs> druggies and dirtbags in the <laughs> Ween audience. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it's actually like gotten a little straighter in more recent years. Like when I saw them in the aughts. It was like Altamont in the audience, like every show I went to. Very dark vibes. Uh, great band, but yeah, very dark vibes around that band. So, but you know, as the band themselves have cleaned up, I think the audience has cleaned up a little bit as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to say yay on They Might Be Giants. Um, not a huge fan, but I appreciate what they do. I have good memories of listening to them at my friend's house in middle school in 1992. So yeah, I'll give them a yay. Yeah, I know a lot of people like of our age heard about they might be giants due to hearing like constantinople i think particle man was on tiny tune adventures as well and um you know that's kind of been my for for a very long time at least until i saw flood or lincoln on you know indie rock best albums of the A's list i assumed they were like a joke band a cartoon band like i could see the ween comparison i <laughs> i think the major difference is that um you know uh, they might be giants would never do songs like touch my tutor or like uh, piss up a rope. Uh, they seem a lot more uh, family friendly than ween. Although, you know, people who are into ween have kids now, but um, look, I, I realize I'm saying this as someone who has written positively about like multiple modern baseball albums, but I just like have such an instantaneous revulsion to the idea of listening to this nerd ass shit. Um, I, I say that like, not that like, Oh, I'm like, I'm like one of the jocks, right. Beating up the people who, um, listen to, they might be giants in reality. I probably should have been a, they might be giants fan early on. And I know a lot of people whose taste I trust, um, you know, bringing up this band as someone they really like. I saw like both, uh, you know, Dylan from spirit night and, um, Shannon from Wake, but still in bed, like in the past week, uh, tweeting out songs that they might be giants they like. Um, look, I know, again, prior, contempt prior to investigation keeps a man in everlasting ignorance, but, you know, contempt prior to investigation also saves some time. You got to have priorities. I I definitely missed the window, and I have no interest in, uh, uh, you know, re revising my take on this band. <laughs> We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so probably not a surprise as to what my choice is going to be. I have an interview with this band running, uh, I think, today on Uprox. It is the new Empty Country album titled Empty Country 2. It is the, you know, I guess new, but it's been a band that's been around for like five years. Um, but it's the more recent project of prior IndieCast fave, Symbols Eat Guitars. Um, it, 
Joe D'Agostino, the um, you know leader of the band, kind of mentored by David Berman uh, right before his death in 2019, and it takes up the mantle of these character-driven story songs about like weird, dirty America. But the music is much more widescreen. There's a lot more Springsteen. Street. He he brought up Street Hassle era Lou Reed as an influence. Um, and it's, there's a 13 minute song at the end called cool S about that S that you draw in school. And I think it's stronger overall than the first, which was a great record that got really fucked over in a lot of ways, um, by the pandemic. Like first it was on tiny engines and that record label folded. And then it came out March 20th, 2020. Um, but you know, I just want to praise this album because so much of the way we've talked about, uh, simple deep guitars and empty country is about, we we've taken ourselves to task on past episodes about describing bands like they should be bigger. Like how come they're not as beloved as they should be? And we know, I know that's like a terrible sales pitch. And I think Joe's kind of come to terms with um, this band's not going to make him famous. It's not going to make up for, you know, the bad rap that was given to symbols, E guitars. Um, That being said, it's just a fantastic, it's, it's like straight down the middle Venn diagram, indie cast stuff. It's, a little bit emo, but like very largely Americana rock, Heartland, big songs, saxophones, harmonicas, weirdo character studies about like drag queens and like boat pilots. Um, Empty Country too, highly recommended. <laughs> so I want to talk about a band from Philadelphia called Golden Apples. They uh, put out a record at the end of October called Banana Sugar Fire. That's all one word: Banana Sounds Sugar like Fire. Album. Uh, and look, I'm tempted to compare this band, uh, to apples and stereo, which I feel like is a lazy comparison because they both have apples in the title. But I do think that the idea of like an elephant six band with like really loud guitars and like bubblegum melodies, which is what apples and stereo is. I think that definitely applies to golden apples. Uh, if you aren't a fan of like the more rock oriented side of the elephant six tree, as opposed to the more sort of mind bending psychedelic side, this is going to be a record that you're really going to enjoy. I would also say that if you're a fan of a band that I've talked about on this show, that's awesome from Philadelphia, the, the band second grade, I think golden apples also slots in there quite comfortably as another just great melodic power pop type band. Uh, the kind of band that I was talking about earlier making the Beatles song. Like I could see golden apples recording now and then and sounding a lot like uh, the Beatles do on that track or the Beatles. I, I'll put them in quotes. Uh, but anyway, this is a really good record. Again, elephant six fans rejoice. You're going to like it. It's called banana sugar fire. It's by golden apples. Really good record. We've now reached the part of our episode where we end. This is over. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.